Lest we forget, lest we forget. Some events in life are too important to be forgotten. Uh, a wedding anniversary, uh, Garrett, you know when it is, right? Uh, Valentine's Day, Medeca, perhaps. They're all dates that we mark every year, that we remember, that we celebrate, because the consequences are just too great if we were to forget. Uh, but this phrase, lest we forget, it's, it's as etched on the minds, especially of Australians, uh, New Zealanders, and many Europeans, uh, to remember those who have given their lives uh, to, in war to fight for freedom. Uh, so in Australia, on the 25th of April, every year, Australians and New Zealanders celebrate Anzac Day, uh, remembering the first day of the Gallipoli campaign, uh, in which over 56,000 Allied troops died, including over 8,000 Australians. You can see they landed on the shore, and uh, the Ottomans were there with their machine guns ready to, to shoot them down. Now, one of those who, who gave their, their life at Gallipoli was uh, this man, the next slide. Uh, okay, that's where Gallipoli is in Turkey. Next one uh, is uh, this guy, Second Lieutenant Alfred Victor Smith. He was awarded the, the Victoria Cross, which is the, the highest medal you can receive. He received his medal for conspicuous bravery. Uh, he was in the act of throwing a grenade when it slipped from his hand into the, trend, the, the trench. Uh oh. Uh, close to several of the officers. Uh, he immediately shouted a warning. He, he jumped himself clear of the grenade, but the other men were unable to uh, get out of the way. And knowing full well that the grenade was going to explode, he returned without any hesitation and flung himself on the grenade. And he was instantly killed by the explosion. His magnificent act of self-sacrifice undoubtedly saved many lives. Uh, he was buried in a cemetery above the beach with a cross uh, marking his grave that was inscribed like this. He gave his life to save others. And so every year at uh, Anzac Day, uh, we remember people like Smith who sacrificed their life for, uh, as they fought for the freedom uh, of all. And they will reenact re the events of uh, that day. There will be a dawn service. Uh, they will, uh, they will uh, play the last post. They will observe two minutes of silence. And the message of the passage this evening really is, lest we forget. Uh, we too are to remember uh, we are to remember the ultimate act of self-sacrifice. We are to remember the ultimate redemption uh, that was won at the ultimate cost. We are to remember and forever treasure the death of Jesus on the cross for us. Well, the death of Jesus, uh, uh, we are to understand, it's, it's not an accident in uh, in Luke's Gospel. It's the, it's the culmination of a deliberate journey by Jesus. Uh, numerous times Jesus has been predicting his death. You might remember all the way back to chapter 9, uh, Jesus said this, he strictly charged and command them, commanded them to tell no one he was the Christ, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be Raised. And then a few verses later, chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face 
to go to Jerusalem. And so Jesus travels to Jerusalem where he knows he is going to die. Again and again, he predicts his death. And in Luke chapter 19, he arrived riding on a donkey, proclaiming himself symbolically to be the, to be the king of God's kingdom. As he enters, he weeps because he knows that the city will reject him. Uh, we see in chapters 20 to 21 that re that rejection comes as the religious authorities question him, seek to trap him, and seek to kill him. And Jesus, last week, pronounced judgment on Jerusalem. A siege will come, the temple will be destroyed, and the religious leaders go off to plot his death. Uh, but Luke wants us to see then very clearly that his death on the cross is, is not just the result of, of wicked religious leaders playing political games. And it's not just about Judas's greedy betrayal. This death is the deliberate plan of God. We're at, we're at point one, three reasons for the death of Jesus. And the first is the leader's fear-filled wickedness. Look at chapter 21, verse 37. Every day Jesus was, was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And so despite all the opposition Jesus has received so far, the crowds they keep gathering. Uh, no doubt this makes the religious leaders even more afraid that the Romans will intervene and put it down. And the Passover just would make things worse because that was one of the days in the year when all of God's people were commanded to come to Jerusalem to remember how God had saved them from Egypt. But this Passover, instead of preparing to worship God, the chief priests and the scribes, they're, they're scratching their head. How are they going to kill Jesus when he is surrounded by so many people? Throughout the gospel, Jesus has been unveiling their religious hypocrisy. But now we're, we're shown it once more. The leaders of God's people are bent on murder. And we're told their motivation. They fear the people. What exactly do they fear? Or perhaps they're afraid that, that Jesus is turning the crowds away from, from them to himself uh, as he exposes their hypocrisy. Uh, perhaps they're afraid that as these great crowds gather around Jesus in Jerusalem that the Romans are going to, to, to come and, and put down uh, this revolt. Perhaps they're afraid that, that if they come now and arrest Jesus with so many people that it will cause an, an uprising and the people will turn on them. But whatever they fear, they care more about the praises of the people than the worship of God. They struggle to find a way to kill Jesus without upsetting the crowds. Now, this people-pleasing is a deadly disease. And it's a disease that can easily infect us as Christians too. It's, it is easy, isn't it, to be distracted from the love of God and to begin to be motivated by the fear of people. We fear not being liked. We fear not being accepted, not being successful in our ministry. And, and that can become the thing that drives us on. I often struggle with this in, in writing sermons. 
it's, it's very easy to be motivated by fear. The fear of uh, preaching a substandard sermon to 300 people. The fear of complaints or the dreaded blue cart, which is usually negative, not positive. When we should be motivated as we preach by the love of God, just wanting to see people built up, wanting to see Jesus on it as we hear his word and respond in obedience, but it's so easy to be motivated by fear. I wonder if you have the same temptation to be motivated more by fear of others than the love of God. It is a cancer that will sap joy from the Christian life, that will take glory away from God. It is a deadly disease that will spread in the churches and in many ministries. And here we see it exposed in all of its ugliness with the religious leaders who would kill Jesus on the Passover because of fear. Well, secondly, we see that Jesus' death is the result of Judas's greedy betrayal. Look at verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And what does it mean that Satan entered Judas? Can Satan enter me? The answer is no, if I'm a Christian. But it's as if Judas is demon-possessed, as if he's got a demon, but it's actually Satan himself, Satan making his move. And we're meant to see that Jesus' death is not just about the political maneuvering of the religious leaders. It is the work of Satan who is engaging in this cosmic rebellion against God. Does that mean that, as God, that God is losing control as, as Jesus dies on the cross, that, that Satan is in charge? Well, look down at verse 21 of chapter 22. Verse 21, the end of the passage, Jesus says this, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it is determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You can see that Jesus' death is determined. It has been planned by God. Indeed, it is predicted and, and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 41 is on, is on the screen. Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Uh, so this betrayal, uh, it happens to King David 1,000 years earlier. It's a, it's a picture of what will happen to Jesus. The one who eats his very bread, Judas, will betray him. And so we see that even as Satan is doing his work, empowering Satan to, uh, to betray Jesus in this most evil of acts, God is still in control. God is sovereign. He is so sovereign, he can even use Satan's evil acts in killing his son to bring about his good plan. Or does the fact that God is sovereign and Satan is ultimately responsible mean that Judas can be excused? Look again at verse 22. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is Betrayed. And so even though Judas is empowered by Satan, and even though he's carrying out the, the sovereign will of God, that still does not deny the fact that he is responsible. Judas is doing what Judas wants to do. 
and he has to stand to account. Notice how the Bible never pits God's sovereignty and human responsibility against one another. The Bible never says that the work of Satan somehow excuses our sin. No, we must hold all of these things together. And we get a a glimpse of his motivations in in this passage. Come back to verse 5. 22 verse 5. As Judas comes to them, they were glad. They agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. So why does Judas betray Jesus? We're not told directly. Perhaps he was disillusioned that they arrived in Jerusalem and he was expecting a great earthly kingdom that didn't come. But at least we know it has something to do with money, with greed. He betrays Jesus for money. And we know from the other Gospels that is what he was seeking. Uh, On the screen you'll see John chapter 12. It's a a passage where a a woman pours expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. And Judas objects to this waste. And he is told, he says, we're told why in verse 6. Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, Judas was a thief. Judas loved money. His crime was well hidden apart from Jesus. Uh, No one knew. But what began with greed turns into temptation and eventually Judas will betray Jesus for 30 silver coins in this evil act. It's scary, isn't it? What begins with a few sinful steps for Judas, a bit of greed, a bit of temptation, in the end leads to the unthinkable, betraying his own master. And notice the ghastly response of the religious leaders. Verse 5, they're glad. They rejoice in betrayal. Now they have their opportunity. The uncomfortable application of this passage is that Judas could be you, or it could be me. Judas, remember, is no outsider. He is a disciple. He was with Jesus for three years. He heard his teaching. He saw his miracles. If he was here today, he would have been here in in church. He would have been serving on the cathedral council. Maybe he would have been leading the service. Uh, giving the finance update, leading a Bible study group, and preparing to register for UCF camp. But ever so gradually, he gives in to the temptations. His greed grows. He does the unthinkable. It's a wake-up call. We too are in danger of being seduced by our, our, our own sinful desires, Uh, We can so harden our heart to Jesus, choosing darkness again and again, that there comes a point of no return when we desert Jesus. We say to ourselves, oh, that sin doesn't matter. No one will know. The dissatisfaction with the Christian life grows. Maybe life will be better without Jesus. We flame our love for other things, money, career, relationships, with a non-Christian perhaps. 
And it's all hidden initially. No one sees. But gradually the temptation grows. And in the end, not even the greatest act of love, the Jesus' death on the cross, can turn us back from our apostasy. There's a warning for us here. Don't be like Judas. Don't begin on that road to destruction. Confess your sins now. Turn back to Jesus before it's too late. Woe to that man who betrays him. Well, Jesus, Jesus dies because of the leader's fear-filled wickedness. Jesus dies because of Judas' greedy betrayal, empowered by Satan. But we can't stop there because Jesus is not just a, 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 a victim of all of these events around him. Jesus is absolutely in control. And we see that in uh, that uh, interesting passage from verse 7 to 13. Uh, we're told about the Passover coming and, and how Jesus sends out the disciples to prepare it. And, it. and it all just seems to go according to plan. I mean, it's as if I, you know, I sent out Dinesh tonight and I said, you know, go walk over to uh, Pataling Street and uh, you know, look for a guy that's carrying a big jug of Chinese tea and uh, follow him to the room that he uh, directs you and there prepare dinner for me. Yes. And he goes and it all happens just as, uh, as I said. Now, there's only two options here, isn't it? Either Jesus has uh, fully arranged everything in advance, and Jesus is very organized. <laughs> or he has complete foreknowledge of the future. But either way, he controls events. Jesus' death is his deliberate plan. He intends to eat this Passover meal with them before he dies. He wants them to understand through it the meaning of his death. And Luke drums this home for us. He tells us, I think, six times that it's the Passover. Uh, you see it in verse 1. You see it in verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15. Again and again, he tells us, it's Passover, it's Passover, it's Passover. And the Passover was that, that great day when God saved his people out of Egypt there was that great and final plague, the death of the firstborn son, uh, which would strike from Pharaoh on the throne to the lowest slave and the animals as well. But God's people could escape as they took that one perfect lamb, one year old, painted its blood on the doorposts. When God came to strike the land, he'd, he'd see the blood on the doorposts. He would, he would pass over because a death had already occurred. That Passover lamb would be a sacrifice. The lamb would die in the place of that firstborn son. And as they ate the lamb and painted its blood, they were also to eat unleavened bread, ready in haste to, to go out of Egypt, because this was the day God was going to redeem his people from Egypt, and God commands them to make an annual reminder of this event. This was to be the beginning of their calendar. This was to be the first of their months. This was their Medeca. They would look back to this again and again as the beginning of their nation, as they ate the Passover lamb and celebrated the feast of unleavened bread. And Jesus takes this central event of, of, of Jewish identity and he says that he will be the fulfillment 
of it all. He will be that lamb that is sacrificed. He will be that substitute that will die in the place of the people. He will take the judgment that we deserve so that we can be freed. And that is point two, God's deliberate purpose for Jesus' death. Well, as Jesus goes on to explain uh, in what we come to know as the Lord's Supper, uh, we first find out that Jesus' death is the guarantee of his future kingdom. Jesus' death is the guarantee of his future kingdom. Look at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so Jesus predicts that this, this Passover meal will soon be fulfilled. And here is a, a little lesson for us from Jesus on how to read the Old Testament. Uh, many of us struggle to know how does the Old Testament relate to Jesus and to ourselves. And, and here we see that the Old Testament is, is full of, of events and people that, that, that foreshadow and look forward to Jesus. We call them types of Christ. The Passover is one of those pictures. It, it will be fulfilled in the kingdom. It's not simply an event that happened in the past to Israel. It is an event that will have ongoing significance for those who trust in Jesus. That great Passover in the past would look forward to an even greater redemption, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And Jesus shows us very clearly it will be fulfilled in his death. And that death will usher in the promised kingdom of God. Jesus said, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is showing us here very deliberately that as we eat, as they ate of that Passover meal and as we continue with eating the Lord's Supper, we are in a very real way anticipating a future day when we will once again feast with God in his kingdom. Uh, Jesus has already mentioned this earlier in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 29. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. This meal that they would eat, that we continue to eat, is a pledge of another greater meal later on when we feast with Jesus in his heavenly kingdom. And notice how they partake of it. He says to them, take this cup, divide it among yourselves. They, they, they share together with a, with a common cup. It's a, it's a sign of their, of their unity and, and fellowship together as they drink from it together. As an aside, that's why in Smack we have these common cups here that we, that, that we pass around. It's a way of us indicating as we share the Lord's Supper that we are one. We are, we are in fellowship with one another and Jesus. We are part of, of, of the same family. It's not the only way we could express that. We could all have our own little cups and, and perhaps drink them at the same time. That might have the same effect. 
But this is what the disciples did. They took a cup and they all drank from it together. And so Jesus' death will establish his kingdom rule. But how? Well, we see secondly that Jesus' death will save sinners from the wrath of God. Look at verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this is uh, the last supper, what we sometimes call communion. We sometimes call it the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it Eucharist. We call it communion when we, we're, we're referring to our fellowship together, our, our oneness in eating it together. We call it the Lord's Supper because clearly it's the meal that Jesus instructs them to share together. We sometimes call it the Eucharist. The word Eucharist comes from the Greek word for giving thanks, and that's what Jesus does here in verse 17 and 19. He gives thanks for the bread and the wine. It doesn't really matter what you call it. At the heart of it, we remember that Jesus died on the cross as that perfect Passover lamb. But we must be clear on what Jesus means here when he says, this is my body. Uh, Those words have been the subject of so much controversy uh, over the course of, of church history. Uh, one common mistake is, is the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is taught by Roman Catholicism. Uh, Roman Catholicism teaches that during the Mass, when, when the priest, that's what they call the pastors there, the priest prays, that the bread and the wine, it changes substance. Trans means change, uh, and then substance. It, it, so it's no longer really bread and wine. It changes into the, the literal, physical body and blood of Jesus, and because they believe it's now the body and blood of Jesus, they, they will elevate it and ring a bell to let you know what's happened, and you will worship it. And then Roman Catholicism believes that the priest will re sacrifice that on what they call the altar as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Now, there's many problems with that teaching. It's one of the reasons why the reformers fought, and many of them died, fighting against this doctrine. But let me illustrate it with an example. Look at the picture on the screen. <laughs> this is me and my daughter eating kajang satay. <laughs> and my daughter loves it. Now, I don't know why it's zooming in. That's a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> I tried to turn that off, but I couldn't work it out. <laughs> Never mind. So if I say, this is me and my daughter, right, I, I doubt that anyone here mistakenly thinks that that is actually me and my daughter. I mean, literally and physically. I mean, uh, I'd love to be that skinny, but uh, I ate too much satay. We all know by instinct that this picture represents me and my daughter. It's not the reality, but it points to the reality, which is me and my daughter, who's hopefully at home. And so to insist that the bread and the wine is literally the body and blood of Jesus is is just a gross misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. It's it's like saying when, when Jesus says, I am the door, 
or I am the light of the world. We're not meant to imagine that Jesus is literally a door or that he, Jesus is literally a, a, a giant uh, table lamp that can give light to the whole world. Jesus is speaking symbolically here. And so to elevate and worship the bread and wine as if it's literally the physical body and blood of Jesus, well, that in the end is idolatry. And to think that in, in, uh, in the Mass that you can sacrifice Jesus all over again, it undermines his perfect sacrifice on the cross. Well, Martin Luther fought vehemently against this, but the alternative that he offered was also in error as well. So next slide, Luther proposes uh, something called... We can go to the next one now. <laughs> uh, I think maybe the previous one before the picture. So Luther <laughs> never gets old, does it? Luther proposed consubstantiation. So Luther taught, well, the bread and wine is not literally the body, physical body and blood of Jesus, but Jesus is nevertheless physically present. He's hiding. He's, he's there in, under, with the bread somehow. It's a mystery how the whole thing works, but he's actually physically there. The problem with Luther's proposal is, if that was true, then Jesus is not really a, a proper human being, because a human being can't be in two places at the same time, at least I can't. And how can Jesus be in heaven and be on earth at the same time? He's not really human. And again, both of these proposals fail to understand the symbolic language that Jesus is using. The bread and the wine, the cup, they represent something. Jesus' body broken. Jesus' blood poured out. When he says, this is my body, he's not saying, be a cannibal and eat me. <laughs> the only way in which Jesus is present is not physically, but spiritually. Jesus says, two or three gather, he is with us by his Holy Spirit. That's what Calvin taught. So Jesus is present, but he's not present physically. But notice the key purpose of the Lord's Supper. We are to remember Jesus' death. He says, do this in remembrance of me. There are memory eight to make us recall again that perfect sacrifice that Jesus offered on the cross, how he paid that death penalty that we deserve, how he, he, he took our place on the cross how he restored our relationship with God. It's beautifully captured in Isaiah 53 on the screen. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Or we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The intention of the Passover was that every single year Israel would remember the redemption that God had brought them. And now Jesus suggests that we are to remember, not Egypt, we are to remember the ultimate exodus, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate redemption. We are to remember the cross. We are to remember how Jesus hung there in our place. And Jesus gives us this meal that we will never forget what he has done for us. But it's a remarkable claim, taking this event and making him, self, the center of history. 
And as we eat, we're not simply remembering what he does, but as Calvin says, it is strengthening our faith. We are trusting again in what he has done for us. Well, secondly, note the purpose of his death. Not only does he save, but he establishes a new covenant. Look at verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Throughout the Bible, we're taught that the covenants are established by blood. This is explained for us carefully in in Hebrews on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. It's talking about uh, the covenant at Sinai between Israel and God. When every commandment of the Lord had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself of the law and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, indeed, under the law. Almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. It's, it's referring to what happens in Exodus 24, where the old covenant was established. Blood was everywhere. And that blood spilt had significance. Unless blood is spilt, sin cannot be forgiven. But the sad story of Israel is that they broke this covenant again and again. They committed idolatry. They, they worshipped false gods. Uh, They came under his judgment and God promised that one day he would establish a new covenant. It's promised by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. 31. Now Andrew always tells me that uh, it's easy to remember because that is his age. (laughs) But I don't believe him. (laughs) Jeremiah 31, 31 he writes, Behold the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that I broke, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Jesus, uh, uh, sorry, the Jeremiah is saying that this new covenant will be different from the old covenant. It'll be different in three main ways, and you can remember it with the acronym IPU, IPU. It would be I, it would be internal, it would be P, personal, it would be U, unconditional. It would be internal. Look at the next verse, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. In the old covenant, the law is written on tablets of stone. But with the new covenant, it will be internal. God's God's word will be written onto our hearts by the Holy Spirit. P, it will be personal. Look at verse 34. Next slide. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. In the old covenant, you must approach God through through mediators like Moses or, or like the priests. But under the new covenant, we have a personal knowledge of God. We know him directly through his son. And you, it is unconditional. I will forgive their iniquity 
I will remember their sin no more. The old covenant required obedience. If you obey, you are blessed. If you disobey, you are cursed. But the new covenant is different. It's not works, but grace. There's no requirements to meet. There's no standard to achieve, at least not for us. Jesus does it. This covenant is based on forgiveness. This covenant is unconditional. And these are the glorious, this is the glorious meaning of those words of Jesus in verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, Jesus' death won't just usher in the kingdom of God. It will usher in this new covenant itself so that now through Jesus' death in our place on the cross, we can have this personal, intimate, and secure relationship with the God of the universe. It's amazing news, isn't it? Perhaps this evening we feel weighed down by our sins. We know that we could never please God on our own. The good news of the new covenant, we don't have to earn God's approval. Jesus deals with our sins in full. He brings full and free forgiveness. We can come to God directly through him, by grace. And as we grasp these things, the Lord's Supper then becomes something truly wonderful. Not just a ceremony that we go in, go through once a month. But as we eat the bread and we drink the wine, we remember Jesus' death. We remember that we are forgiven. We remember we are accepted by God. We remember he loves us and nothing will change that. We must remember. Well, as we conclude, three questions for us to consider on the screen. Number one, have you been covered by the blood of Jesus? See, the past... In, in the original Passover, the child would only survive if they painted the blood on the doorpost. They had to trust in the Passover lamb, and that trust would be seen as they killed the lamb and painted the blood and ate it. What about us? We do not simply benefit from Jesus' death if we stand from afar. We must personally put our trust in him. We must trust that his sacrifice can deal with our sins and bring us to God. Have you been covered by the blood of Jesus? Uh, or perhaps we might say, have, have you painted the blood of Jesus on your heart? Are you trusting in him? There might be some of us here today that are investigating the Christian faith. And here is the wonderful offer of Jesus, if you will trust in him, he will give you a new heart and a fresh start. He will forgive everything you've ever done wrong. He'll bring you a personal relationship with God. Have you been covered by the blood of Jesus? Second, do you truly treasure the death of Jesus? We, we talk about the death of Jesus a lot, hopefully every week. It's easy for us to forget what he's done for us. We must remember. 
We must meditate on what is done for us. Uh, we must so internalize it that it shapes us from within. For as we, we, as we treasure what he's done for us, as we treasure his death, that is when hope and assurance flows into our lives. So as we treasure his death, that's when our guilt will be taken away. It's as we treasure his death that we will overflow in loving and serving others. We must treasure his death. Are you? Thirdly, are you in danger of deserting Jesus? Because Judas was a disciple. And Judas heard all the teaching about Jesus' death. But he did not treasure Jesus. He gave into greed and he betrayed him. Are you in danger of deserting Jesus? Let us look to the cross. Let us remember again what he's done for us. Let us trust in him. Lest we forget lest we forget. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that uh, Jesus went to that cross for us as his own deliberate plan, voluntarily. We thank you that he died in our place that he took the punishment that we deserve, that he brought us forgiveness, he, he brought us a, a personal relationship with you, he gave us a fresh start. Father, we pray that you would help us, even this evening as we uh, eat the Lord's, share in the Lord's Supper together, we pray that you would help us to remember and to treasure again what he's done for us you would strengthen our trust in him. We pray for any amongst us this evening who have yet to trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray that uh, you would bring them to put their faith in Jesus' death for their forgiveness. And any of us who are starting on that road of rejection, giving in to temptation, Lord, we pray that you would turn us back, would bring us back to the cross, where Jesus died for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.